everyone. Welcome to the Wicked Ones podcast. This is Tara. And this is Jen. And we're super excited to be recording our first-ish episode. It's definitely not the first episode, but probably the first one that's going to be shared. And we'll tell mm-hmm. you about that a little bit later. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have a vault. Of, you know. Well, every good podcast starts with a vault of yeah. episodes. We got that. Check that box off. We have a vault. <laughs> you guys can be excited about later episodes, even though you haven't even listened to our first episode. <laughs> There's more in store. <laughs> Walter, do you remember uh, probably about a year ago when we, when the stars aligned and we realized that we both had a passion for true crime? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then we continued to bore and terrorize and every friend and family member <laughs> near us at every barbecue or birthday party. Yes, yes. Actually, I do. And I, I do remember quite well having some friends that were really excited about what we were doing. They couldn't, like, couldn't get enough. They would talk to us all the time about, oh, what's next? What are you going to do? What are you going to talk about? And they had all these ideas. And some people even had people they wanted us to interview. Remember? <laughs> like, we were like, Baby whoa, steps. whoa. <laughs> and then some people... Just asked us to please stop talking because they couldn't sleep at night. It's all right. It's not not (laughs) for everybody, but that's okay. And that's why we're here. And when we said we were going to start a podcast about true crime, we had the support of many loved ones because they just wanted us to stop talking to them about true crime. So here we are, and we are going to share stories that fascinate us with each other. And we invite you guys to listen. We decided, you decided our first theme was going to be neighbors, and I love it. We're kind of still in lockdown mode and being careful and not really going out many places, so our neighbors are all that we see anymore, so why not talk about neighbors for a month? I think that's a great (laughs) idea, so I'm excited to hear your story. Well, I'm excited to tell it, and I hope you like it. I hope this is one you haven't heard, but you probably have, because I know that you're really, really tough to find a new story for, but I'm going to try. So what I have been thinking about a lot lately after, and not really lately, but before when I was doing a lot of the research for this, um, there was, there's still rioting going on. There's still talk of defunding the police. This was something that's been on my mind because what happens when we do that? You know, who steps up to help us? Who can we count on when we really need help? I've read recently, Karen is the person to call. If she could put her number out there for yeah. us, then we know, you know, don't call 911, call Karen. According to all the memes, Karen knows everything. So I'm going to say Karen is the one to call. Yeah. Not the Ghostbusters, just Karen. Okay. Karen. <laughs> so thinking of this, okay, who can we count on? Who, who can, you know, who's going to step up to help? Will it be our own neighbors? We sure as hell hope so if something like that were to happen. But the story I have for you today is actually one that was so disturbing. It's usually one of the most famous cases to come out of New York City and reach the national spotlight. It wasn't necessarily the crime itself, although it was horrendous. It was the press coverage, alleging that the murder had many witnesses who refused to come to the victim's aid. This case and the social phenomenon is called the bystander effect. So you might have heard of that, but maybe didn't know where it came from. Um, It became a widely studied by psychologists around the world, this whole case and the whole phenomenon. And actually, because of this case, uh, it's one of the factors that was um, that was came about in helping to create the emergency system that we know as 911. That's a cool so, fact. Isn't that kind of cool? I That's thought so. Cool. So let me tell you today the story of Kitty Genovese. 
My favorite source that I felt was the most accurate account of what happened that night was actually from an interview on the Most Notorious podcast with Catherine Polinero. She's a true crime author, and she researched for this story for seven years before writing her book, which was titled Kitty Genovese, A True Account of a Public Murder and Its Very Private Consequences. I was very impressed with her research and how thorough it was and just how she spoke about it. It really, it was really cool to listen to. Um, I also found some good sources on history.com and uh, the Washington Post article that was also just kind of a spinoff um, on the history.com site that I went on. So just wanted to make sure that I noted that because obviously we're not journalisms, we're story, we're not journalisms. We are not journalists, not journalism majors, like I want to say. <laughs> um, but we are storytellers and uh, we let the, the real journalists put everything together and then we find our favorite pieces. You know, yes, we just like to share the stories that interest us with each other. Absolutely. So Taking no credit. Yes. So we want to make sure we're giving credit where credit is due. So Catherine Susan Kitty Genovese was a beloved daughter, sister, friend, and girlfriend. She was full of life, well-liked, voted class clown her senior year in high school, and was very entrepreneurial, which I thought was very cool. I mean, we've been very entrepreneurial our whole lives, really, just doing all sorts of... We can share all those fun little facts later. But, yeah, even um, our kids. Yeah, even our kids. Everybody kind of has that entrepreneurial spirit, and I think that's really cool. So it was her dream to own her own bar. She had grown up in Brooklyn, New York, the oldest of five in an Italian-American family. Shortly after her graduation, unfortunately, her mother had witnessed a murder in the street, and they decided to pick up and move to Connecticut. Well, Kitty was 19 at the time, working as a secretary for an insurance company during the day, and she was also managing a bar called Ev's 11th Hour in the Hollis neighborhood in Queens. So she decided to stay in the city. It was her intention to learn all that she could about managing a bar and learning the business so she could one day open her own, which I think is a really great idea. It's really brave at that age. It is. 19? Yeah, I wouldn't have never even. I'm trying to imagine what I was doing at 19. Well, I was in college, obviously, but I don't know that I could picture myself doing what she was doing at 19 in the, in the city by myself. Yeah, I mean, I was super responsible, I feel like, at that age. But still, I don't know how exactly. I don't think I was that goal-oriented. I don't think I knew what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. at that age to dedicate myself to learning. No, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, I, I grew up in a really small town, though. I can't... Maybe if I had grown up in the city, I could see myself doing something like that. But growing up in a small town, I was nervous just to drive in the city, you know? That was a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, you probably can't imagine that because you, you kind of live pretty close to Chicago. Yeah, we went to, I mean, we started venturing out and taking road trips. When I was 16, we took road trips to Florida and across the country, Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. We were very adventurous. We're lucky to be alive, but very adventurous. You but it are. still wasn't that goal-oriented. Like, there was never a point where <laughs> I wanted to learn how to run a business, so I was going to dedicate my time to it at 19. If that makes sense. No, it does. It does. I mean, not that we weren't doing amazing things at 19 for what we were, for what our goals were, but I just, that's crazy. I mean, good for her. Kudos to her. So fast forward a decade later, she met her girlfriend, Marianne Zalanko, at a nightclub in Greenwich Village, and they ended up moving into an apartment together in Kew Gardens, Queens, on Austin Street. So for anybody that's in New York, you know, you probably know where that's at. 
Unfortunately, back then, it was hard to come out as openly gay, so they would claim to be just roommates. And I can imagine, back in the day, this, this story takes place in 1964. I haven't told you that yet, but it is 1964. The date I will mention later. But uh, the area that they lived in in Kew Gardens was thought to be a peaceful, safe, upper-middle-class neighborhood. So on the night in question, Kitty had dinner with a friend, and it was then her intention to head back to the bar and stay in the apartment above with another friend who lived there. Since she had to open the next day, it just seemed to make sense. But at the last minute, she just decided to head home. It was late. It was around 2.30 a.m., March 13th, 1964. Stella's Stella's birthday. birthday. I wonder if that was... Friday the 13th. You have to look that up. I know, it probably was. So she parked her car nearby, and you know, I will say too, there were plenty of times coming home from the bar that I worked at in college, it was between 2.30 and 3. That's about the time you get off after getting everything done. I think that's normal. Even later, I would say, Mm -hmm. you know. I just remember. last call is what, at 2 sometimes? You're probably not I think so. So by the time you get everything cleaned up and help out with whatever your, you know, end of the night duties are. It's pretty late. I remember just trying to squeak out of there and get to La Bamba's to get a big burrito before (laughs) I could get home. (laughs) I could see that. I could see you watching the clock trying to get out on time just so you get to La Bamba's. Oh, yeah. My food is very important to me. (laughs) (laughs) Burrito as big as your head always sounded good at 2.30 in the morning. But, uh, so I can picture it. I can picture it. It's super late. There's nobody around. She parks her car. She gets out. She locks it. She starts heading to her apartment building. Well, little did she know that 29-year-old Winston Mosley saw her get into her car that night and decided to follow her. He would later tell the police that he was, in fact, driving around that night looking for a woman to attack and kill. Crazy that there are people out there like this. I can't. But there are. Even imagine that on my to-do list for the evening. You know, I don't feel like watching TV. I don't have anything else to do. I don't have... I think, Hopefully you know, pick up game of basketball. I don't know. Something. Just something. You don't just think about attacking people. Apparently there's people out there that do, so be careful. Carry your mace. Um, unfortunately, Kitty did not have any. She starts heading home. She notices that the man across the street is starting to follow her. So this is what I imagine. She locks her car, starts walking away, and then looks back to see that he's probably between her and the car. This is all I can think of is mm-hmm. that she couldn't get back to the safe, mm-hmm. you know, her car. I, I would have tried to get back in my car, I think, but it probably wasn't an option. If I couldn't close the gap in time, I would have done what she did. And so she she decides to keep walking, just walking, but when she turns and sees him running towards her, she turns down Austin Street herself and starts sprinting away from him. So she runs toward the bar on the corner probably hoping that it was still open. But Winston catches up with her. And as she's running, she's screaming, help me, please help me. Lights in the nearby building start to turn on. People are starting to notice there's commotion outside. Um, So Mosley catches up to Kitty right in front of the entrance to the apartment building across the street from where she lived. So she almost made it there. Almost. He stabs her with his hunting knife. She lets out what I'm sure was a blood-curdling scream. She screams, oh my god, he stabbed me. Please help me. So just then, a man on the seventh floor named Robert Moser looks out and yells, and I quote, let that girl alone. And you can imagine, right? 
not acceptable, but probably normal in the time. That's what I'm thinking. 1964, mm-hmm. the middle of the night. You, I don't know. And plus seven seven stories up. He probably I mean, has no idea really what's going on. He probably couldn't see anything. Yeah. Who knows? He could have thought it was any type of lover's quarrel or... I'm and gonna assume that he didn't think that someone was actually getting murdered. I think that's a fair assumption. Plus, maybe it was close to the time there's still people lagging around from the other bar that she was kind of running towards. You know, maybe this is this happens. Maybe they're used to a little bit of yeah noise and loud scuffles. Not, nah, yeah. I mean, they say it's a nicer area, but maybe they're used to a little bit of commotion at that time. Mm-hmm. I would say, I would say probably because. There's really not much other explanation for what happens next. So Winston stops attacking Kitty after he hears this. He turns and he heads back towards his car down a side street. Another eyewitness notes that it takes Kitty almost a full minute to get up. She's been stabbed twice in the back at this point, and she's using nearby cars and trees to help her walk. She continues to whimper and cry out for help. So at this point, Kitty has to go all the way to the back of the building in order to get to her place. And all the while, people are watching her stumble and whimper and slowly make her way. So whether they knew what happened or not, or they just thought, okay, maybe she's drunk, maybe Mm -hmm. she's, you know, I think that was probably the assumption. I bet. Even today it might be. Well, and I think even more so then than now, I mean, we still have a stigma for women, right? But I think then now, that was even more harsh, and Mm -hmm. they were probably... Thinking she shouldn't be out there drinking. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. It was more of a disgust type of feeling, if that makes any sense. Right. Like a proper woman would have been in bed by, oh, say nine after. Uh, they might have been more like disgusted by what they were seeing, opposed to worried. Can't believe mm-hmm. she's doing that. What's wrong with her? Well, she and- shouldn't be out there. Right. Instead of, oh my gosh, is that woman okay? Right. Right, exactly. Like I said, you know, if you were a good girl, you wouldn't be out that late. You would have been tucked away at home, yes. you know, much earlier. And that's and just my assumption. I think it's a pretty fair assumption for the time, you know. I think that goes along with a lot of things we've heard from the past. And, gosh, even even now sometimes. It's just, I don't know. People need to, well, I'll keep going. So later, accounts from various people would say they didn't know what was happening or they thought that she might be drunk, or that they thought it was a domestic dispute. Sadly, we know that this wasn't the case. So Kitty makes her way to the side of the building, and she comes to the first unlocked door and collapses in the hallway. And according to Catherine's research, three witnesses overhear her say, if somebody doesn't help me, I'm going to die. That's it's pretty... That's... I mean, that's intense. That's, but yeah. also back to, like, the dis- domestic dispute... That was a time where if a husband and wife were having a dispute, you just mind your own business. That's true. You did not get in the middle of whatever was going on, right? That's true. And even boyfriend, girlfriend. Even now, people will take in take in the kids and hey, kids, you know what? Come on in here. Let mom and dad have a little discussion. And they'll shut the door and they'll right, cross their fingers, hope everything's okay, because this is normal. Right. Yeah, you just, especially then, you just did not get in the middle of Mm-mm. someone, a husband and wife's dispute. And even if you saw things that were not supposed to be happening, abuse, you just mm-hmm. did not get in the middle of it. Turned a blind eye. 
I feel like it still happens. I still hear stories, don't you? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. But I think, I don't know. I don't, I can't imagine this happening. Okay, let me, okay, I'll tell you some more so you can tell me exactly what you think. Okay, so picture Kitty. She's inside the building, on the floor in the hallway, bleeding. She's too weak to climb the stairs. She yells up to the door of Carl Ross's apartment, a friend that she knows. Carl, it's Kitty. Please help me. I've been stabbed. Carl hears her, and instead of helping, he picks up the phone and he calls a friend. Uh, Oh, Carl. I know. I can't. I'm sure this is probably something that he regrets. For the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. So this friend tells Carl to call the police. I have to note here that other accounts later on have said that the friend tells Carl not to get involved. Either way, he decides to climb out of his window across the roof to another neighbor's house. One who, by the way, mentions seeing Kitty stagger down the street. They talk about what's going on in the hallway. And they try to decide what to do because he's not sure he wants to get involved. So while they're discussing this dilemma of what to do because they don't know if they want to get involved... Kitty's still screaming for help. Winston Mosley, at this point, had gone back to his car. He estimated he was probably there for 10 minutes' time. And when he didn't see any sign of help, the police, no sirens in the distance, he decides to go back and look for her. That is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, and it's crazy to me that this guy is next to his car and decides, I'm going to go back. That's, that's like... I don't know if it's, I don't, it's not adrenaline, but almost addictive, right? Maybe. I mean, if you feel committed and knowing that you're going to get, you could get caught. Maybe he wanted to get caught. I don't want to say adrenaline, but gets off on the fact that he did this, didn't get caught, waited it out. No one came and now he's. Maybe just this feeling of, I can do whatever I want. Yes. Yes. It's awful. so sad. It's awful and sad. Poor Kitty. I know. I know. I can't even imagine. She probably felt so alone knowing that she was surrounded by all of these people and so alone. It's just heartbreaking. So he follows the blood trail down Austin Street and unfortunately he tries the same unlocked door that she's lying behind. And we know this from later accounts that he almost gave up and went back to his car thinking she probably made it home, but he tries the door anyway. And he finds her. She sees him and lets out a terrifying scream. And we know this because several witnesses said they heard it. He starts stabbing Kitty in the throat so she can't speak or continue to scream. And then he sexually assaults her, stabbing her several more times in the chest and stomach. He makes a mention that a door opens at the top of the stairs at least two to three times. But still, no one came to help her. Now, do we know that time lapse? That's a long time. It is a time. To assault someone. It is a long time. Sexually assault them and stab them multiple times. I believe later in the story, I note that it was about 30 minutes before the police are called after her first scream was heard. 30 minutes. So that is a long time. I mean, all of this happened within 30 minutes. And it seems like a long time telling it maybe. 30 minutes, though, it's really not that long. It's not that long, but it's a long time for... To be screaming for help and... And nobody helping. Helping. Yeah, absolutely. Depends on which way you're looking at it, you know, as far as time being relative, I guess. But there's multiple, like, different types of assaults happening. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. With people hearing. Mm -hmm. That's just seems like a longer. Absolutely. And now she's in this building and she's kind of at the mercy of Carl and whoever is up there. He didn't just stab her and leave. He. He's still there. Yeah. So when he's done with Kitty, he walks right back out the door and down the street to his car like he's just taking a stroll. And we know this because later a milkman was able to confirm seeing him that day and said he wasn't in a hurry. He was just strolling to his car. Was he not covered in blood? I mean, you know, probably. But... <sighs> was the weapon left at the scene? No, they didn't. They did, That wasn't mentioned. I, I don't think so. I bet he took it with him. I'm almost 100% sure he... Took it with he him. took it with but him. But he had to have blood all over him. He stabbed her so many times. You would think, but at this point, it's what? It's still dark. True. We're you now. I True. mean, True. I'm, I'm and he, imagining. He slices her throat, right, at some does. point, so she can't keep screaming. He does. So you know he's he's covered in blood. Yeah. There's no way he didn't get some sort of splatter. Yeah. But you're right, it's dark. I didn't think about that. It's dark. People are in a hurry. Not Sometimes really you funny. think you see something, but you're not. How many times do we see something and we dismiss it as something else? No, right. And if I saw some guy staring or walking down the street at that time, I probably wouldn't do several looks to check him out. Right. To see. I mean, it's it's actually interesting to me that somebody even noticed him. Yeah. Just the fact that, oh, yeah, I saw that guy. Really? You did? But I mean, maybe it was because that was his route. He did that all the time. And he probably thought, oh, that's that's new. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to work at this time. That's. Not normal for this area. Who knows? But either way, it w- it left enough of an impression for him to tell the police later. So. so after he left the building, Carl Ross and the other neighbor contact a woman named Sophie Farrar, who lives across the hall from Kitty, and they explain what happened. So Sophie, with no regard for her own life, because who knows if this guy is still there, right? She runs to Kitty's side. She finds her in this awful state, bleeding profusely, can't speak, she yells up at Carl to call the police in an ambulance, which he finally does. Since the police station is so close, a car arrives in two minutes' time. That's even more heartbreaking. I mean, it just gets worse. It just gets worse. So, yes, and here is actually where I noted that the call was finally made 30 minutes after Kitty's first scream for help. So, 30 minutes. That's correct. It's a long time. Mm-hmm. So sadly, she dies not longer, not long after in the ambulance. I just feel like so many things could have been done differently and she may still be alive. But detectives immediately start investigating as soon as they can. They start questioning people milling about, trying to see what happened. They're able to create a timeline and pinpoint where she was attacked. And they were probably able to follow the blood as well. Um, and they find that as they question people, many people said they didn't want to get involved or they were scared. Um, there were even some disturbing comments that we talked about previously. You and I had mentioned that people had heard the screams and thought that maybe a girl was being raped, but out of that time of night, it served her right. Or that if she had been in bed where she belonged, these things wouldn't have happened. It makes me sick. It's awful. Basically, victim blaming and shaming, like we hear so often, which is just despicable and probably another cause for topic at another time that absolutely we We shouldn't women should not be feared for the life no matter what time of day or night no i don't care what she's wearing she didn't ask for that dark nobody asks for that no it's just ridiculous just it's just awful 
So they even questioned an employee of the apartment building across the street from where she's first stabbed. He was supposed to be posted at the elevators, and if he was, he would have seen the whole thing. Well, he tells the police at first he wasn't at his post. He was taking a nap downstairs, and he didn't see anything. Of course, they knew he was lying, so they took him in for further questioning, and he later admits to seeing the stabbing, but again, he didn't want to get involved. So he was willing to lose his job, Mm -hmm. lie about not being there, opposed to getting involved. That says something. It does. It really does. I really think it has something to do with that time. Could be. I mean, it's really hard for me to put myself in 1964. It was such a different time that I don't even know if we could wrap our heads around what people were possibly thinking. Well, it's very different because in our society now, people want to insert themselves Anywhere possible. So it's a very, very different. Mm-hmm. We've we've come a long way, and I'm not sure everything is always a good thing in Correct. the way that we've come. I don't know if we've come but, in a good way. Yeah. I think there's probably positives and negatives to everything. But, yeah, I, I have a hard time putting myself in that era, you know? So maybe that's why it's hard for us to, I don't know. Either way, I just feel like someone should have helped her. I'm sure everyone does listening to the story. But so police canvassed the whole area. They talked to everyone, co-workers, friends, close neighbors. Marianne was actually even a suspect at one point, but they had nothing. As with stranger um, on stranger on stranger violence, it can be hard to find the attacker. I mean, obviously, there's no motive and no one even knows. There's no explanation of anything. Right. It's completely random. Yeah, we see that all the time. It's just, I mean, if it's not obvious, it's really hard and... I don't know, but this is interesting. So six days later, it just so happened that Winston Mosley was taken into questioning for a burglary after police get a tip and find a stolen TV in the trunk of his car. The officer at the time thought this was really strange. Here's this 29-year-old man, married with children, really intelligent, held a great job for the past 10 years. What the hell is he doing stealing appliances? So as he's being questioned... He actually admits to several other burglaries. So remember, the car with the TV, his car, was a white Corvair. And it just so happened that another detective named John Taglia remembers that a witness to Kitty Stabby mentioned seeing a white Corvair at the time of the incident. The detective also thought it was strange that this guy had such a cold demeanor and it was just very put off by him. So he makes him sit there and he calls the lead detectives from the Genovese case. They come in, they see the cuts and bruises on his hands, they question him. It doesn't sound like they questioned him for all that long, and he confesses to the murder, and he also confesses to two other murders in the Queens area, that of Annie Mae Johnson and Barbara Barbara Kralik, hopefully I'm saying that right, along with several other rapes and sexual assaults. I mean, it just sounds like this guy was, sure, I'll tell you what I did. What a monster. Yeah. Just Wait, so he's stealing TVs as well? That's bizarre. It, it is That's bizarre. It's a bizarre combination. It is. Rapes and assaults and murders and TV stealings. Usually petty theft like that is just not... going to say. Mm-hmm. Well, usually that's where it starts, right? Petty theft, and then that kind of goes to, oh, well, I got away with that. Maybe I'll try this. And then that kind of leads to other things, and then that might Maybe, lead to But usually doesn't it just... And- but isn't it usually, like, the theft with assault? Like, you're robbing people? Yeah. I feel like theft and sexual assault and murder are very 
they they're they're are... a little bit usually different. But I mean, I suppose when you're this messed up, right? Everything, can, all the lines can blur. I'm well, trying to put them. He could have just been like, "Oh, it's super easy for me to steal and make extra money." And Ugh. yeah, what? Why not do that on the side too? Doesn't sound like you had to be pressed very hard though. No, which is crazy. And the police think the same thing. They think, "Well, this is really strange how he confessed to these crimes so fast," and they're super skeptical. And they're thinking that he may just be a serial confessor. I mean, we've heard right. of those before. He just wants to take credit for someone else's because yeah. he's an egomaniac. Yeah, right. Like, kind of the whole idea of, okay, here's this burglar. He knows he's going to jail and he wants to make it sound like he's this macho, you know, mm-hmm. not that it's doesn't... macho, but you know what I mean. He wants to make well, himself sound like he's done all of these horrible things. To other will... criminals and felons, yes. it, he... I would assume that makes him sound cool. Why not go in with a reputation? I, right. So this is the this is the thinking, right? But he but he knew details in these events that couldn't be denied. I mean, they hadn't been out there in the public. He knew them. He had to have done them. So you know, he may have been a very intelligent sociopath, but it was Catherine's belief, the author I mentioned, and she had been in uh, she had interviewed him and she had been in communication with him for several years. So she thought that even though he didn't have to confess and he probably would have gotten away with it, he just wanted it to end. Which we've heard before in several other cases, probably the most famous being Ed Kemper. He was another very highly intelligent sociopath. He also ended up turning himself in and confessing to his crimes because even though he was he was just as cold and sociopathic and couldn't feel empathy, but he knew what he was doing was morally wrong and he was done. You know, he he read it. He read that it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. He read that it was wrong. Yeah, he I read knew- it was wrong. He, I mean, he was a smart person. so He, he was knew, very intelligent. He knew it was wrong, even though he couldn't feel that it was wrong. Right. Right. So, I guess he decided I need to stop. And then, that was it. Maybe this guy thought, I can't stop. So, somebody, I, needs, to make somebody me- needs to stop me. I just need to, I need to confess to this because I can't control myself. If he has m- multiple mm-hmm. victims that they did not even know about. Maybe in their own way, they do feel something and it makes them finally say enough. But who knows what that is, right? Mm-hmm. Later on, Mosley would actually say that he was actually the getaway driver and then it was the mob who killed Kitty. So remember when you asked me about the Genovese mob mm-hmm. connection? Turns out she had an uncle named Vito Genovese, the same as the famous mobster, but it wasn't the same guy. They had no ties to the family, no ties to the mob, so this wasn't seriously entertained. And I should note that his son believed that Winston attacked Kitty because she yelled racial slurs at him, which is interesting. I mean, did he tell his son this because he needed to justify what he did? Probably, right? Probably, but still never okay. Even if someone yells racial slurs you don't attack mm-hmm. sexually assault and kill it, i i find that interesting that he found that justification right that's what i was just gonna say that in his mind that sounded better than well i was just out looking for someone to attack and kill yeah right so he had to tell he had to tell him something maybe his son asked him why did you do it and he said, well, I was actually just, it was, I didn't do it. I was the getaway driver and she yelled racial slurs at me and we took her down, yeah. you know? Yeah, trying to sound more of superhero-ish in a twisted way. Correct. I, I could see that. So Winston actually died in prison March 28th, March 28th, March 28th, 
2016 at the age of 81. And I, I like my side notes, apparently, because I have another one. He escaped in 1968 while at a hospital in Buffalo. He raped a woman and held hostage several others at gunpoint before being recaptured. Do we know how long he was in prison when he did that? I'm very curious. Mm. Not that I would think that you would know that, but it just gives a lot of um, thought to the fact that he did exactly the first thing that he went to prison for Mm. after escaping. Okay, so he was sentenced to death on June 5th, 1964, but it was reduced to life in 67, so I'm guessing it was about four years that he was in prison before this happened. He, uh, obviously at that point, I don't, I don't even know how, if there's any rehabilitation when you're sentenced to life. What do you say? Oh, that's very complicated, but I don't. He obviously has no remorse for the things that he did Mm -hmm. if that's the first thing he did when he got out. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you usually say, right? A leopard never never changes changes his spots. You know I'm not one for... No. I don't believe in rehabilitation in certain crimes, Mm -hmm. in certain habits. No, I don't I don't believe that we can fix that. I don't, I don't I think, think it's how they're either. wired. I mean, I know there's so many people out there that just think we should try and try. And, you know, I think they are. I think they are trying. But, unfortunately, I think when you're broken, you're broken. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that in my research, I found that in 2004, journalist Jim Rosenberger, I hope I'm saying that correct, for The Times, wrote an article trying to debunk the New York Times 1964 report. The day after Kitty's murder, they had an article titled 37 Who Saw Murder Didn't Call the Police, which alleged that multiple neighbors heard or witnessed the crime but did nothing to help. So this is when the paper followed up the next day with an analysis and reports from several psychologists and experts on the subject of why people would turn a blind eye. This, of course, then led to all the press on the case, and the New York Times was highly criticized for factual errors, and they were actually accused of creating a social phenomenon for sensationalistic purposes. This phenomenon, as I mentioned before, is called the bystander effect, or Genovese syndrome. And it has been very widely studied. In fact, it's been proven in clinical social experiments that witnesses are far less likely to help a victim if there are other witnesses. So the more people, the less likely one single person will intervene. Makes sense. It does. It does make sense. Because you always say that the other person is going to call for help or the other person is helping and the Mm -hmm. other person's taking care of it. I can see how that. Right. Well, that person already called 911. We're good. That person yelled at that person, like Mm -hmm. Carl. No, not Carl. The first guy. He yelled and someone could have been like, oh, he yelled. He's got it. He's got it. Yeah. I'm not my own business. Right. Correct. I could see it. I could see it all happening. Mm -hmm. Just exactly like that. Uh, in 2015, Genevieve's younger brother, Bill, also produced a, document- a documentary titled The Witness, laying out a case against the New York Times as well. The new claim here was that only two neighbors were involved, and one was Carl Ross, who was very intoxicated that night. So, you Makes know. sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. It said here that he opened the door, saw Kitty lying on the ground, attempting to speak. Mosley is stabbing her, and he shut the door, called a friend, and was told not to get involved. He did then climb to the other neighbor's house and finally called the police at the, re- the request of Sophie Farrar, the woman that I told you right. ran to her side. 
you know, not a good excuse, mm -mm. but somehow I can see it happening. Mm -hmm. Is it like opening the door? He's wasted. Holy shit. Is this mm -hmm. happening? Shuts the door, runs out. Well, cause you, you don't almost what? see it happening. How wasted was he? Right. Was he drunk? Was he high? I, right. Was, was he on he... tons of drugs? I mean, am I seeing this? Am I hallucinating? You don't know. Right. Is this really happening? Mm -hmm. Oof. You know, I didn't even really think of that, but that could be, that could very well be a possibility. Is it, is it bad that I also think that I wish that I could climb over the roof and come hang out with you? Oh my gosh. Like, wouldn't no. that be awesome That'd be if we lived that close that we could do that? Yeah. Without <laughs> any of our family knowing, you could yeah. just sneak out and like run across the roof and I could meet you. That would be amazing. I agree. We gotta, we gotta figure this out. Totally. We need this situation in our lives. So his explanation, I didn't want to get involved, became the ever-famous reminder of the bystander effect. And this case and the murder of Kitty Genovese is credited as one of the reasons the 911 emergency system was put into place officially in effect in 1968. That's a cool fact. I, didn't, I had no idea that's where it came from. Yeah, I did either. I mean, I, I don't think it was solely this case. I think there were other factors, but yeah. this was definitely a factor in in the decision making, which I thought was, you know, was really cool when I, when I was researching. So when Catherine Pellinero was asked about this revision of that historical night, she says that she had no stake in the outcome of her seven year research, that it was her job to dig into the facts and just follow wherever the facts took her. And that's what any good journalist does. They don't, they don't decide what they think until they get the whole story. Mm -hmm. And that's, I love that. Seven years is a long time. For a 30, 30 minute, minute story. Yeah. It's a long right. time. I mean, she did her due diligence, it sounds. I mean, she tracked down everyone who knew Kitty. The old neighbors, children of past neighbors, investigators who'd long been retired that were on the case. She dug through police reports. She visited the location. And probably most importantly, she developed a relationship with Mosley. She kept in communication with him for a long time. They corresponded while he was in prison. And she believes her account was the most accurate. And I tend to think that it probably was, you know? So as awful as this case was, it's interesting how much good came of it, which I don't know if it's any comfort at all to those who dearly miss her, but so many articles were written. It was studied in textbooks. Pastors gave sermons on it, urging people to step up and help one another. So I don't know. What do you think? What do you think would happen if this exact situation happened today, downtown in a nice area of Chicago, where, you know, we're, we're kind of familiar with, there's plenty of people who could, you know, happen by or hear or possibly step in. Do you think we can rely on our neighbors for help? I would not rely on fellow citizens for help. Uh, we're in a weird place. I think I would help. I think you would help. I think most of the people we know would help. But there's this certain segment of people that are just video taping everything and yeah. instead of helping they're mm -hmm. making videos but we see it more and more that's happening a lot i mean even in high schools right there's these mm -hmm. fights that break out and people are videotaping them instead of stepping in or so i mean there's all these assaults happening mm -hmm. i don't i can't even i would never think to pull out my phone i can't even get my phone out to take a picture of my kids but <laughs> <laughs> but right I know that that's what other people are doing. Well, and I even see, 
I even see some of these funny things on YouTube. You know, the kids always show me something here and there. Mom, watch this. This is hilarious. And I see some of these videos of these kids and I think to myself, the parent really videoed that for a long time. Yeah, they watched to see and, what was going to happen. And it's funny, but is it funny? Is that kid okay? Yeah. You know? And I don't know. You know, that it reminds me of that meme, right? With the, the little kid at the zoo and the giraffe is like half like eating this child. And it was something along the lines of, do I finish videoing this to see where it goes? Or do I drop the camera and help my child? Totally. You know? Yeah. yeah. What is wrong with people? It's a weird, I'm not, I don't understand that part of it yet. I, I haven't figured that. So not only can we not wrap our minds around 1964, we can't even wrap our minds around 2020. No, and I think I understand 1964 a little bit more than I understand 2020, <laughs> to be completely honest, because I think that was just a time where you just minded your own business. That's true. You just minded your own business. Nobody minds their business anymore. No, but your business is everybody's business. And nobody's business, but my business is not my business. Like, it's right. just a... Everybody's neighbors know. Everybody's yeah, it's business. it's a weird... And the faster you can go live on Facebook or Instagram or with, like, this leading story and how many likes and comments, everyone's looking for that, like, weird second of fame. It's, it's hard to understand. Well, I almost feel like that's what happened with the news and the media. They got so wrapped up in who can get to the story first and who can and who can get this and who can get that. And if it bleeds, it leads. And nobody mm-hmm. stopped to think, is it true? Accuracy doesn't matter anymore. No. no. I mean, look at those kids. What was that story where they were made to look racist? And why can't I think of the whole story? Mm-hmm. They had signs and... Um, oh, did the, CNN just pay yes, them yes, yes. millions? And I can't even remember the whole I can't remember what story. it is, but yes, they totally spun it. And it was all wrong. And it was wrong. And mm-hmm. it yeah, ruined I, their lives. It and did. They had to, like, switch schools and their parents got bullied. At work. Yeah, it was really bad. I can't even remember what the story was. I mean, or how it how yeah. it happened. But that's what it makes me think of, you know? It was the one where it was the Native American, right? And the kid, Mm -hmm. the younger Caucasian, yes, I can see it. Yeah, and I can't, I can't remember all the details. It's really awful that I don't, but it's, it's been a, it's been a weird year and I have been, I've had my nose in like so many other things that I'm missing half of what's going on in the world. I will admit that I get a lot of my news from you. (laughs) So tell me what happened this week because a lot of people, there's a lot of commotion out there and people are pissed and I don't I don't know why so you need to fill me in well you know me I I try I'm always like I can't watch this anymore and and then I'm in it because mm-hmm. I can't stop so I, mm. and in my world if there's not like a little ticker on Disney to tell me what's going on out there I don't I don't know because I usually don't have the news on around the kids and I just don't have time but anyway it just makes me sad because my major in college was journalism, and I looked up to many of the journalists of the past, and just seeing what the media and everything has become today just makes me sad. I mean, I, I don't even know what to believe anymore. Half the, half the stories that I look at, I, I don't, do I have to fact check this first before I, get, before I get excited or before I get upset or before... Most of the time, you know, unfortunately, yeah. So it's easier for me just to swipe and go... Well, it's easy to just not even look at it. No. And then I just start shopping on Amazon or Target. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably a lot happier anyways, yeah. so you should just do that. It is. 
Well, I enjoyed our first neighbor story. Not that I enjoyed what happened, obviously, to Kitty, but I did learn some... Did you? Did you hear that story before? I did not. I recognize the last name. Mm-hmm. So, from what I recognize the last name, she was married to a mobster oh, with yeah, that yeah. last name, and she was gay, but secretly gay. Gotcha. So, she had a house that she rented on the side where her lover would live. Oh, That sounds interesting. Very interesting. So when you said that last name, that's what made me think. I'm like, I know this story. Maybe you should fit that story in somewhere. So I'll have to do do a little bit more research and freshen up on that. Maybe I can share that later. That'd be great. I'll squeak it in somewhere. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you learned a little bit more from my story today that you didn't know because you are very tough since you listen to this stuff literally all day in your ears and podcasts and stories. And um, I feel like I know... Very little in the in the crime world compared to you. So I'm happy that it, you were able to learn a few things today. Thank you. So, and hopefully everyone out there enjoyed it as well as far as just hearing something or learning something new that you didn't know previously and giving you a little story to share with your, with your friends at, you know, the next party or campfire so that you can terrorize them and they can tell you to <laughs> start your own <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Very much so. All right. Well, until, so I guess, yeah, until next time. Can't wait to hear your neighbor's story. Stay safe. Help your neighbors. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.